Alright, welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. We have managed to steal away one of our awesome chief residents, Luke Selby. Luke is here to chat with us about hashtag surge parenting. Luke is the proud father of two young kids and his wife is an emergency medicine physician as well. So Luke, to start, why don't you tell us how you got to this point, how you came to be a surgery resident and what kind of drove you to surgery in the first place? So the short answer is that third year uh, in medical school, surgery was just the coolest thing. It's what I found that I wanted to do. I liked a lot of internal medicine. I liked a fair amount, parts of every field. Um, but I remember one of the, I had a weekend call as a third year student and we had a patient with a bleeding duodenal ulcer and the chief and the trauma attending took him to the OR. And I spent the whole time sitting there suctioning away uh, ascites, just kind of looking at the field with the thought in the back of my head, this is a job. I get to do this for a living. And it was sort of, it was that. I My wife is two years ahead of me in this whole process. So when I was a third year, she was an intern. We got out, of, I got out of the OR and I called her and I said, I decided I'm going into surgery. And she goes, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I said, you can't possibly know I made this decision an hour ago. And she goes, no you were always going to do this. And it, then from there as a intern and a second year student, I initially didn't know what I wanted to do. Like a lot of junior residents, I was drawn to trauma critical care. But as I spent time in the ICU and as I spent time in services that I hadn't been exposed to as a medical student, I found myself more and more drawn to surgical oncology um, to the point where I spent three years doing outcomes research in surgical oncology and starting in August, we'll be doing a two-year fellowship at Ohio State. And congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, Luke, you are very prolific, not in, just in terms of your clinical and research career, but also I would say in the medical surgical Twitter world. And would you say that you had... Um, a hand in the beginnings of the hashtag surge parenting, which is kind of what this episode is about. It was probably either me or Sarah, uh, not my wife, Sarah. Sarah, now I'm going to get in big trouble for this because I'm going to mispronounce her name, Bryson Kowski, um, who's now a general and robotic surgeon in New Jersey. I ended up joining Twitter at the very beginning of my lab years frankly, because I didn't understand what Twitter was. And as a, as everyone knows, as an intern and it's the second year, you don't have time to do anything. But then in the lab, you get a little bit more time back. And I joined Twitter kind of just to see what it was and found a lot of surgeons on there who were having interesting discussions about interesting things. and Including family. Including family. And basically just kind of got drawn in and sucked in to the point where probably Twitter occupies a lot of my procrastination time now. <laughs> so to follow up on that and surge parenting, can you tell us a little bit about your family? Yeah, so my wife, Sarah, and I um, have been dating since the beginning, since October of our sophomore year in college. We went to Bates College. We had couple of classes together freshman year. She actually taught an EMT course that I took. Um, we got to know each other and then we started dating October of second year or of sophomore year. 
We've been married now for over 10 years, got married the summer after my first year in medical school, which was the summer after her third year in medical school. And we have two kids. We have a five and a half year old Andrew and a two and a half year old Jackson known on Twitter by a lot of different hashtags, including the collective chaos and mayhem, which <laughs> describes our household reasonably well. All right. Since this is the topic of family as a surgical resident, Walk us through like a typical morning or evening at the Selby household and really like, tell us how you manage to balance your needs, uh, your, your role as a resident and preparing for the next day's cases or clinic and same for your wife, her academic needs, how you guys balance that out with family time. So the typical morning is pretty easy. I leave before everyone else is awake so I can sneak out. Um, if I'm on a lighter rotation and I'm leaving a little later, the kids sometimes are up and then they like coming down and hanging out with me while I'm having breakfast. And then um, if it's in the spring, summer, and fall, I tend to bike to work. So then they like racing me out our driveway. <laughs> and in the winter, I drive to work. So if they're awake when I'm leaving, I'll pull the car out of the garage and then they come over and say goodbye and give me high fives and stuff. And then when I get home, it's actually this is when it's the hardest because – if I have a day where I can get home early, get out of the hospital and see my family, that's great. But if I make it home before the kids are in bath and starting to go to bed, I invariably hang out with them and we'll play with them and we'll help with bath and bed, which most of the time turns into me falling asleep in Andrew's bed, <laughs> um, probably before he falls asleep. And that just makes it hard to read for cases, prep for clinic, all the stuff that we have to do when we get home. So sometimes what I will do is I will, um, if I'm getting home and the kids are already up in the bath, if I haven't seen them for a while, then I'll announce my presence and just tell Sarah to not let me fall asleep in his bed. Um, but if I, if I have a lot to get done, if I have to finish a M&M PowerPoint or if I have to work on a paper revision or something. Then I'll sneak in and try and make my way to the office, our office, without them noticing, which then is hard because you hear them like cackling and giggling in the bath and having fun and you're forced to split, forced to decide whether you're going to be dad or whether you're going to go do the academic work that we have to do. That's obviously not something that's unique to surgery and it's not something that's unique to medicine, but it doesn't make it any easier. I have a couple of follow-up questions about the logistics of what it's like becoming a parent and being a parent. So when did you guys have kids? Did you kind of think to yourselves, because obviously you guys waited a little while after getting married and you have both been in training and then the beginning of Sarah's academic career. So I guess my question is, when is a good time to have children if you are on this road? And did you guys specifically plan a time that you thought would be best for both of you? So the, the cheesy answer is there's no good time, but there's also no bad time to do it. It we we had we knew we wanted to have kids, and we also knew that being in medicine creates some really obvious breakpoints to having children. Um, so we had, Andrew was born at the very end of Sarah's fourth year of her emergency medicine residency. And so she 
finished residency, she stockpiled a bunch of vacation and had had some, quote, maternity leave from that vacation at the end and then started her job as her first job as an attending a little later. So she ended up having four months of maternity leave, two of them or part of it was paid for essentially with vacation in residency. And then the other bit, she just, uh, you know, started or started working later than she otherwise would have. And then Jackson was born right before I came back to clinical and when we were moving from New York uh, out to Denver. And again, we did the same thing. She delivered, used stockpiled vacation and whatnot, and then started, I think for with Jackson, she also took four months off. Um, but there's not a good time to have it. As a surgery resident, I'm a guy, obviously, so I didn't have to carry and deliver them, which makes it a lot easier. But the the thing you don't realize until you try and have kids is it doesn't, it's not as easy to have children when you want to have them as you're afraid it is when you don't want to have them. <laughs> We're relatively open about this, but Sarah had a couple, had two miscarriages with Andrew and one miscarriage with Jackson or the other way around. And the thing you learn when you're having miscarriages is that everyone else you've ever met has basically also had a miscarriage. So it's as much as physicians and surgeons try and plan and try and have everything be perfect. The best time to have a kid is when you're ready and, you know, when you and your family are ready and there's no good time. Like it's hard to have a kid in medical school. It's hard to have a kid in residency. It's probably super hard to have a kid as a junior attending. So the best time to have a kid is whenever you'll do it. And if you're at a supportive medical school or at a supportive residency or as a, at a supportive practice, the hope would be that your deans or your co-residents or your partners will just figure out how to make it work. We have, I think Colorado is great in that respect. We've had a lot of people deliver lately in of the residents this year. I can think of two women who are pregnant probably means they're more that I don't know about. And we're just going to figure out how to make it work so that they can get the learning done that they need to get done, but then, you know, take care of themselves because pregnancy is hard. And we know that female surgeons have worse pregnancy outcomes than female non-surgeons and female physicians have worse pregnancy outcomes than female non-physicians. So we obviously need to do better sort of globally. But I think within that context, this program does a pretty good job of making it all work. So Luke, in terms of having support from your program, I think that that is certainly something that I too have seen to be strong here. But I think that when I think of having children, it requires a lot of support from everybody. So maybe that means having your parents or your kids' grandparents close by. Maybe that means having a nanny. So the questions I have for you is, who helps you with childcare? Who helps you and Sarah with childcare? Do you guys have a nanny? And then if you do, how does that work financially as a resident? I know things are a little bit different because Sarah's a big girl doctor now, or a lady doctor, I should say, but <clears throat> I'm still a baby doctor. So it, it's a little bit scary to me to think about those kind of things. Yeah. So 
I'm from New York, and my parents still live in New York. And Sarah's from Maine, and her parents still live in Maine. So, they, so grandparents are not exactly here. Grandparents do not play into the minute-by-minute minute daycare. Um, we have an au pair. When we were living in New York, it was easier because um, Andrew, or when Sarah was in attending, I was a research fellow, so I had, and I do all outcomes research, so I had no nights, no weekends. I never had to go in and feed my cells or get a midnight time point. Turns out Excel files can take care of themselves over the weekend. Um, so I, whenever Sarah worked a night or a weekend, it was just daddy daycare, which was a ton of fun with Andrew. Um, and since I came back to the real world of residency for the three years we've been out here, we've had an au pair. Um, there's a very well-established federal program for um, au pairs to come over on a J-1 visa and do a, get a cultural exchange. So we had, we had one au pair for two years, a guy named Aaron from Britain who was great and who... Um, ended up staying here, staying in the States and like still comes over. He came over and had Thanksgiving dinner with us last year. Hmm. And when he comes in the house, the kids, even if they haven't seen me in two weeks, they'll stop talking to me and go run <laughs> over and give him a hug and say hi. Um, and we now have uh, a new au pair who's, I guess, not that new. She's been with us since August. Um, her name's Bianca. She's from Germany and she's equally great. And there are um, some specific re educational requirements and work hour requirements. Um, if you think our work hours are strictly monitored, hers are um, – it's a federal thing. So if you break the rules, you're breaking the federal government's rules. But they work um, – they can work up to, I think, 45 hours a week. And they there's some rules about time off. So we keep to that. Luckily enough, A, Sarah's in attending, so there's a little less financial pressure on us than there would be on a family of two residents. Um, but also because she works in emergency medicine there, the intensity of their work is just as high as what we do, but the number of hours that she works are much less. So functionally, Bianca works when Sarah's working. And then if I'm on the weekend, she'll work for a little bit when I'm around so that I can do the residency stuff that we have to do like read for cases and this so I, I think this topic is a perfect example of why we did this podcast what i mean by that is we've all heard the anecdotes of a medical student showing interest in surgery and being told that well surgery is challenging if you're planning on having a family and obviously that's more often uh told to female medical students but really anyone considering a family it's not uncommon for them to hear that I do think the culture is changing, that that's becoming less common. But what would you tell a medical student who may have heard that from a mentor or someone that they encountered during their clerkship? So I think the unfortunate thing, at least the stories that I've heard from medical students who have relayed this conversation to me asking that same question, is it's often coming to them from a non-surgeon. And it's I think it's no different than the, oh, you're smart, you shouldn't go into orthopedists because they're just carpenters or whatever stupid stereotype. You shouldn't go into emergency medicine because you want to do something more than just triage. Like all of those things I think are outmodeled and not conductive, you know, not productive. If someone wants to be a surgeon, they should be a surgeon. That said, we do work a lot and it is hard. There are no two ways about it. It is hard to emotionally be sitting in your office 
writing the email to your team for the schedule for the week and working on M&Ms while your kids are running around like goofballs playing with their grandparents. That sucks. But that sucks if you're in surgery. It sucks if you're in internal medicine. It sucks if you're in whatever. The other piece is we know, going back to what I said earlier, we know that um, pregnant surgery residents have worse pregnancy outcomes than pregnant non-surgery residents and that pregnant physicians have worse pregnancy outcomes than pregnant non-physicians. And we have to get better at that. But just because you want to have kids shouldn't disqualify you from being a surgeon. It has certainly made me I think a little bit of a calmer, more understanding chief resident, which probably means I'm treating all of my junior residents like five-year-olds. <laughs> um, but it's, it's easier to, I think it's just easier. You know, everyone says when, when you become a patient, you're a better doctor. When you become a blah, you're a better doctor. It gives you more life experience and it's, it helps you relate with families better. And nothing gets a family to open up to you than goofily playing with their kid in, you know, when you're seeing a consult in the ER, if you walk in and like give a kid a high five and talk to them about the Doc McStuffins cartoon that they're watching, like that buys you street cred that you can't get otherwise. And it then makes it easier to do my job as a surgeon and talk to them about whatever conversation we have to have. Number one, I would like to know who Doc McStuffins is. <laughs> and then secondly, if I'm somebody who either already has children as a medical student, or if I am planning on having children in the semi-near future, in the next five years, 10 years, um, and I'm applying for surgical residency and interviewing, how? what kind of questions do I ask or how do I find out if this place is going to be supportive of me being a mom and having a family? So that's tricky, and as a guy who could not look more like a surgeon, it's I get nervous answering that question because, A, I'm a dad, and dads get credit for being dads, and moms probably pay a price for it. Yeah. But also I'm not – if you're interviewing at Colorado, the two days I'm interviewing, you can just straight up ask me, and I'm not going to judge you for it. But there are people who probably do judge – the questioner for it. However, any residency program has a pre-interview dinner. And what I will tell the applicants is everyone thinks they're on at these pre-interview dinners and it matters. And it's true if you commit some huge social faux pas, that's going to find its way back to the faculty. But the residents at these dinners are there to talk to people and explain about the program. So my guess is the fact that one of the 30 applicants asked a question about having kids in residency is is not going to come back and bite them in the butt. And you should just ask, right? Like surgical residency is five to eight years long at a place. If you're married, if you're engaged, if you're whatever, the chances that you're going to, if you want kids, the chances are that you're going to want to have those kids during residency just based on how old you are when you're in medical school and just the biological clock, basically. So you should ask. You got to spend seven years with these people. If it's a place that supports children, they'll tell you that. And if you get some weird evasive answer, 
especially if you get some weird evasive answer more than once, it's probably not a place that supports you having kids. And I don't know how important that's going to be in your decision tree. If, But if it's important, you know, you don't want to go to a place that's not going to support you having kids and then try and have kids because that's just, that's going to suck for you. It's going to suck for your program. It's not going to be a good fit. It's no different than, you know, I don't know, if you're everyone in your family line for 400 generations has gone to the University of Michigan and you want to go to Ohio State, right? Like they're dumb things that matter and you should ask about them and you should know. And I I don't know that it should be the thing that decides, but it's got to be on the decision tree if it matters enough to ask, ask. All right. I want to, I want to switch gears a little bit. We hinted at it earlier that you are, you have a fair presence on social media, specifically Twitter. And I've actually been a fair advocate of using social media from an academic perspective within our program. I've gotten several people to sign up, but I also am more of what I think Twitter would call a lurker. I certainly don't express my opinion, mainly because in my experience, I've tended to put my foot in my mouth in the past. And <laughs> while I've improved significantly in person, I'm still worried on social media. But I'm curious, you know, Twitter seems like a double-edged sword, and we've certainly seen that you know, for most recently, the whole this is our lane movement. And there's a perfect example. So how does someone utilize Twitter, especially like a medical student or junior resident, to their gain by putting their name out there, networking, building their presence, but also avoiding, you know, turning certain people off to their personality or their opinions? So there's some expression, and I can't think of who said it, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but it goes something like, Tis better to be thought an idiot than open your mouth and refuse uh, and remove any doubt. Mm-hmm. And so Twitter is totally a double-edged sword. You can – it gives you the opportunity to, quote, meet people who you would never meet otherwise. For example, Justin Dimmick, who's a, a huge, very, uh, very senior, very important health services researcher at the University of Michigan – I met on Twitter long before I met in real life, and now I feel comfortable going up to him at meetings and saying hi and not introducing myself as Luke Selby, a surgery resident who thinks he wants to do health services research, but going up and saying hi to Justin. And that's only because, A, he's a very nice guy and he believes in mentoring, but I only have a whatever level of relationship I have with him because of Twitter. Um, when Ron Stewart came and gave Grand Rounds here a couple months ago, um, he came and gave Grand Rounds and then he gave a dinner talk at the Denver Academy of Surgery. And I went up to him and introduced myself. And I was in the middle of my, my name's Luke Selby. I'm one of the chiefs. And he goes, I know you from Twitter. <laughs> and so a lot of the discussions I've had on Twitter have been super intellectual about management of whatever appendicitis, you know, um, whatever like whatever thing is going on if there's an interesting conversation and i think one of the things that's nice about twitter is if there's a conversation going on with a bunch of senior people it's a lot easier for junior people to make a comment and if you say something that's dumb no one's going to reply to it but if you say something that's intelligent people are going to reply to it and it doesn't matter that you're a high school student you're it's when the internet is used well, it's used well for breaking down, to some extent, breaking down barriers and hierarchy. Um, but a lot of what I talk about on Twitter is my kids or 
barbecuing. Like I posted, I had more posts on Thanksgiving about smoking our turkey and the fact that we had 10 pies for 10 people than I've had about surgical science in a long time. And I think a little bit, my view is a little bit that helps because it, to whatever extent, I'm a scary figure for people to approach. And I got to believe on Twitter that's not true. But seeing someone who talks about their life, like Jeff Matthews, who's the chair of surgery at the University of Chicago, right? He's the chair of surgery at the University of Chicago. And he'll post, he'll have big sciencey discussions, but he'll also, he's a huge music fan and a great guitarist. And he'll go on rants about new albums that come out. And it just makes it like when you see sides of people, it's no different than, you know, the experience we've all had. You do a long case with an attending and at the beginning of the operation, you're talking about the pathophysiology of this and the anatomical approach to that and how to do a medial visceral rotation or whatever. And then by the end, you're talking about where they went to college and the fact that they went skiing last weekend and where their favorite hamburger place in Denver is. It's just that. It's you break down barriers a little bit. You get to know people. You get to see a little bit more of an unvarnished side of people. So if someone wants to get on Twitter, just join. Follow some people. You know, don't just follow surgeons. Don't just talk about whatever. When I was on research and had the ability to exercise more, like I would post pictures from the uh, running races and triathlons I did. You know, it, you can, you have to be careful in surgery because it is a serious profession and we are held, physicians are held to a higher standard in all aspects of our life. So I'm, I'm very aware that anything I post, for lack of a better phrase, can and will be used against me in a court of law. So that means I don't publish, I don't post like inane rants on stuff. I don't, you know, but it's, it, it can be a tool for good. And by the way, I think that this is our lane thing has shown that it is a tool for good. The NRA had some stupid tweet about us, about surgeons or physicians staying in their lane on gun violence. And well, you know what? That's my lane. I'm a chief resident at a program that rotates at two level one trauma centers in Denver. Like three. Well, yes, two in Denver. Two in Denver and three one in Colorado Spring. Like <laughs> this is what we do for a living. So of course we have a say in it. And it can be used for that. It can be used for great advocacy that this is our lane. Hashtag has been picked up. It's been on NPR. There have been two of the faculty at the University of Colorado had an op-ed in the Denver Post about it. It's probably every major newspaper has written about it in some form. But you can talk about that and then talk about the fact that we're in Denver and we're all going skiing this weekend. By the way, great reason to train at the University of Colorado. And we can talk about cooking and you can talk about your kids and you know i can have one tweet about my kids i've started bringing andrew my five-year-old to round with me sometimes on the weekend and tweet a picture of him in his like miniature human white coat looking <laughs> cute and then the next minute post a tweet about how he's like having a meltdown over something silly you know some normal stuff like it i think it can be used for good it doesn't have to be entirely professional but if you're going to attach it to your professional identity, you have to realize it's being attached to your professional identity and it's fair game. I got asked about it on interviews. 
Well, Luke, thank you for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate your time. I'm sure you got clinical duties you need to get back to, but we appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, Luke.